0: can markets restructure energy? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Lynn Keisling. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Lynn Keisling. Lynn is visiting professor in the Department of Engineering and Public Policy, co-director of the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics and a faculty affiliate in the Wilton E. Scott Institute for Energy Innovation at Carnegie Mellon University. Her research in transactive energy uses transaction cost economics to examine regulation, market design, and technology in the development of retail markets, products and services, and the economics of smart grid technologies in the electricity industry. Her publications include journal articles, policy analysis, and she's published a book entitled Deregulation, Innovation, and Market Liberalization, Electricity Regulation in a Continually Evolving Environment. As a noted expert in smart grid economics, regulatory and market design, and retail competition, Lynn speaks to various academic, industrial, and regulatory groups about regulatory policy, institutional change, and economic analysis of electric power market design. Lynn, welcome to The Curious Task.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: So Lynn, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the conversation and answers take us. Our question today is, Can markets restructure energy? But before we talk about restructuring energy and the current frameworks, I want to establish a bit more context. The first question is going to play a part in our understanding of how the industry can change. And it may seem a little elementary, but uh, let's, let's start with some 101. Can you tell me how exactly the chain of energy delivery works? I think most people think of just power plants, and then somehow their lights turn on. But uh, how many steps are in this process of delivering energy? And then, of course, that'll help us understand how many areas there are for potential change. But walk me through how electricity gets to my house.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great place to start with the caveat that I'm not an engineer, um, although a lot of the projects that I do, I collaborate with engineers Um, so I've picked up enough to be slightly dangerous. Um, (laughs) but the basic idea, and we're, I want to focus on electricity, uh, you know, because the, the category of energy is really broad, uh, because that includes, um, you know, transportation fuels, um, the use of petroleum and, you know, oil-based, uh, oil-based energy products for, uh, everything from making petrochemicals to making plastics, um and so there's it's a, a fairly broad category but if we focus on electricity uh and I should apologize to to your uh Canadian audience because a lot of my data are very US focused just because that's what I know. Right no problem. Um but uh the um of the use of of energy to produce electricity is about Uh, depending on how you measure it, about a quarter to a third of all of uh, the energy use in the U.S. Um, And I think that's uh, roughly, very roughly true for Canada as well. Uh, uh, So, yeah, you're right. It starts with some kind of use of a fuel input, or I'm going to just call it a resource. You use some resource uh, to um, generate the electricity and then stuff happens and you flip the switch and the light goes on. So how many steps are there in that? Uh, the first is the the generation portion, which I think we'll want to, we'll want to kind of zoom in on each of these and talk about the specifics uh, a little more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but just at a very high level, you um, use some kind of resource uh, to generate the electricity um, and then it is transported uh, over a usually the first step is over a high voltage transmission network and so those are the big towers that you see uh, you know when you're out and about you know towers crossing over fields and and highways right and um, and that's high voltage transmission and uh, you can think of uh, the the analogies to telephony and and communications networks only get you so far with electricity, but you can think of that as like um, on a high voltage transmission network, it's kind of like compressing the way you compress uh, bits um, to, you know, to, to send them digitally in a more efficient way. Um, But I wouldn't stretch that metaphor too far. (laughs) So on the high voltage network, you, you're transporting uh, the current, but then, to get it to a voltage that's uh, less dangerous, still still dangerous, but less dangerous for everyday use for factories and offices and homes, um, the there's a transformer transformers in substations, and they transform that high voltage energy into low voltage energy and that goes out on a a lower voltage smaller wires distribution network and then you that's where then it gets sent to the service wires that come into your home or your office and that gets connected to um to basically the junction box in your house uh, and that's why when you flip the switch light goes on so physically that's what's going on
0: a lot of steps and that's why i thought it was great to start there and i'm glad you agreed because it's, it's really not just power plants and wires so, so that's awesome so i guess like one of the sort of quick follow-ups to that i was going to ask uh, as, as you were talking there it came to my mind is that so because as you just went through this isn't just so easy as oh you know something goes in light switch turns on that th- people should care about this ultimately because uh People don't realize just how connected we are, pardon the pun, of course, to this world of electricity delivery, right? It's not just like one sort of thing going on. And then especially with more electrical devices and things like that, I'm you can't really go around anywhere, I don't think, today without being having a, a touch point or two with everything that's going on behind energy production and electricity.
1: That's right. Um, and and uh, it, it gets even more interesting than that. Your setup is perfect because... Um, we we th- when we think about networks, we tend to because we we have a very kind of presentist uh, focus as humans, and so we think about networks as being digital networks and the internet, and so that we're all connected through our, our um, communication devices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know, networks networks are an old human phenomenon. You know, you can go back, you know, and and just thinking about the kind of anthropology of human trade over the millennia. You can think of trading as a form of networks. You can think of um, uh, financial services and the the growth of banking in Europe out of the coffee houses in Amsterdam and London right. as a network. Right. And so uh, you know, railroads,
0: road networks, even road
1: networks. And so so the electric system is an example of a both a physical network and an economic network. And and one of the things that I think is really important and one of the reasons why we have so many touch points with this network is that it's that intertang intertwining and entangling of the physical and the economic. Right and, and I think, and then this was true. And, and, and here, and I should say one of my hats that I wear is, is economic historian. And I, I was, my, my uh, doctoral work was in economic history. And so part of that is a history of technology and uh, the, the history of electricity technology. I of course find endlessly fascinating and can talk about all day, um, but I won't try your patience. The, uh, <laughs> the um but it the 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 uh, and I'm not a technology determinist but I do think that understanding the economics of the energy system and the under economics of the electricity network and and how we got to where we are today uh you can't ignore the technology the technology plays a very important causal role in in the economics so if we go back to um, you know, we could you know go back into the 17th century with all of the exper- little experiments about um, electric current, or right. you know Ben Franklin, the, the you know Ben Franklin flying his his kite in the thunderstorm, and all of that. But but for in terms of the kind of commercial, I flip the switch and the light goes on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Viability of electricity as a as a service that we get to consume. We can go to the 1880s, and uh, there's some parallel development going on in England as well as in the U.S. Um, I'm going to focus on the U.S. case just because that's that's what I know, but more than the than the British case. But um, you know, in it from its origins in the 1880s with Thomas Edison. You know, Thomas Edison was famous for doing a lot of research, having a very large um, lab that, with a lot of engineers working with him, and they were just you know, relentlessly developing different things. And one of the things that he developed that really shaped the nature of where this industry was going to grow and, and develop was the idea of electricity as a system. And so he envisioned it as a soup to nuts, you know, that the Edison electric company would come in and provide you with a service in your home or in your business. And Edison electric company would own the generation, the high voltage, Well, and in his case, and this is way down in the weeds, we don't need to go there, um, his, his vision of a network was very much a direct current network. So within like a two or three block radius, you string direct current wires and it's a lot more like, um, you know, like we think about the internet where you're just kind of pushing, you know, you're kind of pushing current in a direct line. Um, But he, so his idea was, generation, the wires, even the fixtures inside the home, all of that was part of the system and that he was going to come and offer you a package. And and so this idea of what economists call a vertically integrated company where you have multiple steps in the supply chain and they're all being provided by uh, within a firm, as right. opposed to having the generation company, the transmission company, uh, the retail energy supplier, and that you contract with each of those. So vertical integration within a system is very much a characteristic of the technolo- of the technology and of the vision that Edison had in building this. And so we, you know, we have that to this day.
0: That was going to be my next point, which is excellent uh, because that's one of the things as you were talking that I thought of is that I read in one of your papers that like although of course we don't have for instance uh apple energy coming into our house directly vertically and them owning every step on it this is still that template you sort of just outlined is still what we're experiencing today right it's it's a very vertic vertically oriented uh, way industry and how of how we that we get our electricity from but not only that you talk about that it's also a, a very one directional industry and that's the sort of mentality the whole thing is so let, let, let's indeed dive a little deeper into the the verticality we have today, and also this one-directional uh, adjective that you, you you attribute to it as well.
1: Sure, um, and and that really does get us to some of the most important profound technological changes that are happening right now, mm-hmm. uh, and that will and that will shape our our interaction with the energy systems for the next you know for the foreseeable future. Um, this system is very one-directional in the sense that generators generate. Um, and we can think about it as the the vertically integrated firm, um, you know, starting in the 1880s and then, you know, they, the industry grows just, just, um, because lighting, electric lighting was, was kind of a holy grail, right? The, the search for high quality lighting was something that had, had been animating the, the minds of inventors uh, and entrepreneurs for at least a century. Right, right. It's just candles just don't cut it. Um, you know, if you if by the 1880s, you know, you have these growing um, industrial factories, and how do you how do you provide lighting within these large buildings became a real problem. Uh, and then within the home, of course, you have like whale oil lamps, uh, in the 1830s, 40s, uh, they provide a bright light, but they're kind of smelly and, uh, fire risk, obviously. Uh, then you get kerosene that replaces the whale oil. Um, and that's when that kerosene is really the beginning of our use of petroleum energy. Um, the other, the other thing that, of course, is important in an energy sense here in the 19th century is the use of coal to fire steam engines to run all these industrial processes. Right, right. So, separate energy question, but, um, but then you know, kerosene lanterns, uh, or or if you're in a city, you could have the infrastructure to run gas lighting into the premises um but you know all of these lighting sources have their pros and cons and so electric lighting was really kind of seen as a holy grail and um and uh the the idea edison's idea was to have this vertically integrated what started as a lighting company and then in the early 20th century they became lighting and power companies as uh, more of these industrial factories switched over from belt-driven machines to uh, machines run with electric
0: motors. So so that's very interesting. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to make sure that this distinction is clear. So like, Um, because I think we, we, a lot of people like, cause a light bulb is a symbol of electricity. So people don't make that distinction. So that's very interesting that you said, like, this was ultimately all about delivering the product of lighting at the beginning. And then it sort of brought into this idea of energy as a one directional vertically integrated thing as well. So that, that's that's very interesting. Okay. Got it.
1: So yeah, it starts with lighting. And then by the early 20th century, it's growing into providing lighting and power Mm. Um, and, and there's some other interesting economics of that, but the, but the one directional thing is very much part of this system vision that generators are generators and this vertically, these vertically integrated firms are going to own the generation assets, the wires assets, and then the meter at the premises, um, and initially, you know, the the um, energy use wasn't metered. You basically paid a subscription to the Edison company. But then by the 1890s, uh, you started developing the meters with the spinny, you know, like rows of five or six spinny dials.
2: Right. right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and, and there are a lot of places that to this day still have those. But that's like bleeding edge 1900s technology. <laughs> that's <like laughs> a, a really old mechanical technology. Right. Yeah. Um, and and so the idea of the system is that as a in in your home or in your office or in your factory you are a consumer of electricity and so there's this one directional flow of current from the generator over the wires to the end user and and that uh that's that that flow gets built into the architecture of the network.
0: Okay. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. The other thing that happens, um, and this is a really important part of the economics, right? This is the late 19th century. So when you think about, you know, your economic history of the late 19th century, there are a few kind of big themes you think about. And one is big, right? So big factories, big industry, um, you know, economies of scale, a uh, progressive era, right? We think about trust busters, right? Big financial firms. And so one of the things that, that the innovations of the 18th and 19th century culminate in late in the 19th century is the ability to build and to do economic activity at much larger scale than was ever possible before. And, and electricity is the poster child for that. So like under in, in this, uh, and I'm not saying this just because we're in a, in our cross-border conversation, but one of the most important, uh, developments in the electricity industry in 1896 was the construction of the, um, the generating company at Niagara Falls. And so there's, you know, power on both sides of the, of the U S Canada border but the, the turbine halls underneath Niagara Falls are harnessing all of that energy, that all of that potential for work that's in all of that massive amount of water coming over the falls. And so they build these turbines because the way you get electricity is you use the water to push the turbine so that the turbine rotates and it's rotating in a, you know, it's constructed in a way that when it rotates, it gives off electrons. And so that's how you get the current and and push the current. Um, And the turbines underneath Niagara Falls are twice or like 12 feet high. They're twice as tall as a typical person. And there's two dozen of them underneath there, right? So this is massive, massive production at very large scale. Um, There's some changes in the transmission technology from Edison's direct current to what's called alternating current, the way um, the way electricity flows on a network, it flows as basically three offset sets of sine waves, and um, and that enables you to transport electricity much longer distances without losing as much as you go. So, um, so what does this all mean economically? This means. Massive scale economies that you can produce a unit of electricity, um, what I'll call a megawatt hour, you can produce a megawatt hour of electricity at lower cost per unit, lower average cost than if you had a whole bunch of little teeny tiny firms doing
0: it right and, and as you said one of the major aspects of this is that it's, it's very one directional so like in, in the sense mm-hmm. other than well the only other thing going in the direction is, is money to, from the customer right but it's like going to a grocery store for instance that's a one directional relationship right there's a whole economy of scale behind that de- that delivers me the goods i'm purchasing and, and and you've written that now you see trends whether the industry likes it or not we'll get to that in a little while but now we see trends regardless <laughs> of whether who likes it or not to a more t- Two directional industry, right? So, can you can you explain what this means uh, first? I, basically, what I got out of this is that it, maybe the internet metaphor here is, is good again, right? There is sort of like an uploading and downloading that always happens between users, not just downloading kind of thing. That's what I understood from this two directional uh, revolution, basically. Yeah, I think
1: I do think the internet metaphor has some relevance, although I, again, I wouldn't push it too far. Right, but, right. But um, the one one important piece of the puzzle before we talk about the Potent, why why directional becomes important is um, this this economies of scale and then um, some other some other economic characteristics uh, creates a lot of concerns by the turn of the the turn from the nineteenth to the twentieth century creates a lot of concerns that um, even in cities like Chicago where um, you, know, you at, any, there, at, at its peak, actually, I, I, I think um, at its peak in Chicago, there were as many as 70 electric companies mm. in operation in Chicago. And they weren't all covering the exact same territory, right? So the, the city council would basically give them franchises for specific. Um, but in some areas, you would have like up to a dozen different electric companies that you could choose from. And so, in the early in the early years of the industry, and in big cities like New York and Chicago, uh, the the industry was very rivalrous. Right, so there was there was competition, and of course, what does competition do? It drives down price. And so, you know, you think as a consumer, you're like, "Yay, that's great, driving down price." Um, The challenge in an industry like this is that it's a very high fixed cost industry. So, think about the capital that you have to invest in to build those generators to build those transmission wires to build the substations to build the distribution wires to install the meters Uh, that's all expensive capital and relative to that capital the the main variable cost you have is your fuel Um, and that cost is pretty cheap compared to to your cost of of capital and so if you have a bunch of firms and they're competing down to price equals marginal cost, they're basically competing down to the fuel cost, and so that means that, depending on you know if some firms are more um, are more efficient than others, they uh, they can really bid that price down. But other firms that maybe aren't as good at operating, you know, they're, they're not as, as, as um, low cost, they go out of business. And so then the incumbent firms can acquire their customers, can acquire their assets, and that's how you get this consolidation into essentially um, large incumbent firms that become monopolies. And, and that gets enshrined in regulation. Uh, And actually, the industry argues for regulation because this kind of, you know, price, competing price down, bidding price up, competing price down, price goes up, entry, exit, entry, exit, um, is very disruptive and and a very uncertain business environment. And they want to just build out the network. And so they're like, okay, we'll take regulation if in return you grant us a monopoly. Classic. And so that's the kind of Faustian bargain of regulation. Right. Um, but what that means is, and that starts in the U S that starts in 1907 at the state level in New York and, and Wisconsin. And by the 1930s, almost every state in the U S has a state level public utilities commission regulating electric companies as these vertically integrated utilities. And so that basically um, encases that business model in Amber it kind of freezes the business model and says, OK, this vertically integrated generation, transmission, distribution meter, right, that's the business. And, and that, in, that kind of enshrines that one-way flow. And, that, and so that governs how they build the networks. And, um, and so they build them with this one-way flow, thinking that like, the, consumer's all, the end user is always just going to be a consumer. Um, so now we fast forward to, let's fast forward to the 1990s, I guess, uh, you know, in the 1970s, we have kind of the oil, high oil prices. And in the U S we have uh, wage and price controls and energy, you know, kind of the, the energy crisis, um, that leads to more research into things like solar, solar panels, solar photovoltaics, um, in the 1990s, we also see a, a really growth in genera- in research in wind turbine generation, but that's mostly um, uh, not necessarily done in the US. There's a lot of innovation done in Europe on wind turbines. And by the late 90s, the kind of standard wind turbine is the Danish model. And that's the wind turbines that you see these days with the three super long blades and the kind of woof, woof. Yep. Uh, and so, um, but for the two-way flow question, what's really interesting is that over the past, say, decade, since since about 2012, the um, the economic viability of distributed resources, so like distributed solar, rooftop solar in particular. Um, and say, having an office park that it has is self-sufficient and and owns their own generation and can self operate. Right? we call that a microgrid. right? So these microgrids uh, and the ability to do rooftop solar, that really decentralizes the network because you have more of this distributed generation potential distributed generation capability
0: so so even though as you said uh, for many decades we still have a very vertical very monopolistic very one directional industry in the background the technology to enable other formats and other ways of distribution is, is sort of like developing and even happens yeah. and, and starts getting sort of plugged in at the at, at certain port- points of the chain so to speak
1: mm-hmm. and so so and this is not the first but but this is the most recent in a in a long set of um, innovations, technological change that are very Schumpeterian in nature, right? So one of the one of the things that that I tend to do in my work is I take I take uh, sort of Adam Smith, Hayek, Schumpeter, and Coase, and I mash them all together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but the 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 very Schumpeterian thing that has been happening since the 1980s. Is innovation in generation technologies have broken the economics of that vertically integrated firm. And so um, in the in the 80s, you had what's called the combined cycle natural gas turbine, and that reduced the economies of scale and generation in a way that wholesale power markets became possible. And so now, you know, in, in both Canada and the US, we have areas that that um, have liberalized open competitive wholesale power markets Um, and this this decentralized distributed generation is another kind of Schumpeterian set of innovation that's that is breaking apart the economic justification for that vertical integration but it has real architectural implications and that's this this two-way flow thing right because the network, the electric power network is built for this one-way flow from generators to consumers. But say now you're, you know, you say own a, a home and you have solar on your roof and you have a um, Tesla Powerwall battery in your garage and you own an electric vehicle.
0: Actually, and you know what, that, I'm going to stop you right there because that's actually an excellent place to take our break because we're at that time. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking to Lynn Kiesling. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks, as always, to our supporters on Patreon, including Christopher MacDonald, Daniel Beer, and Danny Leroy. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Lynn Kiesling today. So, so, Lynn, before the break, we talked a lot about the the nature, well, actually, the history of the, of the power generation and electricity industry, as as well as sort of throughout the decades how that evolved and we talked about the one de- directional flow uh a, a very sort of mo- monopolistic sort of industry and right before the break we started talking about sort of the the emergence of sort of this this idea of a, of a two-directional industry we talked about microgrids. you start about different technologies developing so, so let's just jump jump right back into that start t- Talking to us about what the world started to look like and will be looking like in the future when we sort of smash together sort of digital technological revolution with with its implications for power. Where where are we going with this? What does this two directional world sort of look like?
1: I wish I had the crystal ball to tell you exactly that, but but my vision of it is uh, I guess I work from an an example that gives you a a good use case. Um, You know, suppose you have a uh, you own a home, so you have a roof. That you can you have rooftop solar on you have a tesla Powerwall battery in your garage and you own an electric vehicle um and so you've got the plug in in your you can do the fast charging um and so uh, once you have that you could in theory be completely self-sufficient and just go off grid right and and so tell the tell the the wires company the, the electricity distribution company you know, I don't need you anymore. I'm right not
2: here. Right.
1: Uh, and I think they all they all live in fear of that because that, you know, then all their revenue goes away. Uh, my argument is always, well, if you have these expensive wires, network assets, uh, and you're worried about your customers leaving, give them something to do that they can get value from. And what's something that you can do if you have all these assets You know, on, on days when it's really sunny and especially if you have a battery storage, um, you know, which is becoming more and more economical over the past two years even, um, you can basically um, store up energy when you're not using it and sell it to other people. Or you could choose to reduce your use when the price of energy is really high if there's a market and sell it to other people. Right? And so, so, one of the, op- the most important and I think valuable opportunities that the combination of the distribution, electricity distribution network, and the digital communications network brings us is the ability for us to use markets to mutual benefit. Right? And so, here's where. You know, Adam Smith comes in mutually beneficial exchange,
0: and the multi-directional point, right? What you're saying, this is you're a producer and a consumer in this equation now.
1: Exactly. So now, instead of just being a consumer, if you have these resources and you can, um, you know, produce energy for yourself or for others, then you can sell it to other people. Um, Physically, that means that um, you know the 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 distribution network ideally would be capable of the bi-directional flow to to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big challenges in this big, expensive, legacy, incumbent uh, infrastructure is making the investments to enable the two-way flow. Right. And so that's that's a, a going to be a big challenge.
0: But to put some uh, practical examples on that, though, I think you still sort of highlighted some that we're kind of seeing right now. Like, for instance, the ta- the Tesla, I forget what it's called, the the Powerwall kind of thing. Powerwall, where, yep. right? Like, I mean, certain people right now, I've read articles about that they have solar panels and they're they're generating their own energy. If they have if they have surplus electricity, they're selling it back to the grid. So, so some of the seeds are still there already, even though the the infrastructure hasn't radically changed just yet. Like, we're not in twenty eighty yet, yep. but it's it seems to be starting a bit at least. It is.
1: It is. Is. And and the, the existing grid ha, is capable of handling some amount of that kind of flow, but as um you know looking forward and one of the one of the great and, and really valuable things, you know, the, the 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 electricity network is a technological marvel. It is a, right. it's just a complete technological marvel, and I think a lot of the very careful and thoughtful engineering that that goes into it, um, you know, part part of that it usually involves a lot of kind of long run planning. And so, if you look down the road and try to model out some scenarios, okay, we're maybe at like three percent penetration of renewables right now. What happens when we get to ten percent, or twenty percent, or thirty uh, percent? Is that going to break the grid? And and so, I think that's the that's the main concern is investing for a future that mm-hmm. you know, what what in the lingo we call a high der um you know a high distributed energy resource a high der future and and so i think that's the big challenge um the uh, another another big challenge is that because this has been a regulated industry for you know a hundred and ten years uh the it, it, well, as consumers, we have become habituated to paying a regulated price that stays the same all year, right. every day. Right, that fixed price that reflects the average cost of average cost of the electricity. Um, and only finding out at the end of the month when we get our bill how much we've
0: actually spent well and i would say as well just to add to your point that we're not just fixed in the idea of of paying that bill like this is the way electricity works we're also all just fixed into the idea that this is the way the only way in fact that electricity delivery can work right like our mentalities are all like that's it We're, we're a consumer of electricity i don't know how it works but but that's as you said at the end of the day i pay my bill End of story for me,
1: and and I think you know, kind of psychologically, behaviorally, it's important to uh, remember that um, what's true for a whole bunch of other different goods and services we consume is also true for electricity, and mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you know we don't we don't want to have to think about it right every day, right? And you know, I don't I don't want to have to think about oh, it's going to be really hot today need to change my thermostat, blah, blah, blah. you know, it's um, and so one of the, one of the big challenges, I think, is that the, this is so in the middle, not just of changes in technology, but changes in mindset. And so the, you know, the, the traditional mindset is very much thinking about the consumer who has to actually go physically and adjust some mechanical thermostat. To change the temperature, to save energy, to save money. Um, but the beautiful thing about digital technology is that we can automate a whole bunch of that. You know? And whether it's like um, you know the Nest thermostat or the Ecobee thermostat that builds in automation, or even if you're if you're um, more willing to do the work, you can if you have a digitally enabled. Uh, thermostat or digitally enabled appliances that have an IP address, like uh, you know, new refrigerators all have IP addresses. Yep. And so you can connect them to a network um, and you can use if this, then that, for example, to set up, you know, a whole bunch of conditions in which you can change the operation of the devices in your home to change how much energy they use save energy to to save you money whatever your objective function is
0: i think it's interesting to note on that point though actually that that a lot of these things have been developed just from the perspective of not changing the energy industry yet but but mostly for just from you know consumer convenience right the amazons and the apples of the world that's kind of the perspective they're coming from but it's interesting to know how that Will at some point by necessity converge with our conversation, which is the the energy industry as a whole. For that sort of bottom up consumer wants to adjust their thermostat from their office sort of convenience will eventually become an engine of efficiency for all the things you're talking about.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and it's it's very much a bottom up, uh, and and you know putting putting on my historian of technology hat again, that's that's how that's how technological change always happens, right? These the building of the electricity system happened in a very bottom up way. You know, it started with, you know, this company building this set of a distribution network in this neighborhood. Right. And then others doing it over here. And, and, and eventually you know, we stitch them all together. And we, whether it's through regulation or through contracts, we uh, develop ways to interconnect uh networks and and contractual means for being able to transact power across these what used to be separate so it's very much bottom-up um, the other thing that i think uh the other co- another conversation that happens a lot in energy is the um well you know it's if it's like homeowners at such small scale you know especially if we're talking about something like reducing greenhouse gas emissions um, you know, okay, everyone, you know, you want to do your part, but it's not really, you know, not going to make that big an impact. But, but I think one of the lessons we learned from thinking about complex systems from complexity theory is that very small, you know, large numbers of very small decentralized actions can aggregate up into something large. Um, but there's also a lot of, um, a lot of other, uh, a lot of other activities that this digital technology enables so for example large commercial buyers of power like um you know people who have a lot of server farms so technology companies you know they uh they buy a lot of electricity and they want you know as part of as part of their corporate brand and their reputation if they want to have that be um you know low greenhouse gas emission electricity then they're going to go out and try to buy clean energy uh, whether it's renewables or or nuclear or um and so you can get all of these diff and, and that it can be more easily enabled by digital technology and for those larger buyers they can participate more readily in markets that, you know, and markets are digitally enabled coordination processes.
0: And even back to that two directional idea, right? That if a business can turn electricity as a cost on the, uh, as as a cost on the balance sheet to even like a source of revenue by selling backup into the grid, that's a huge thing too, right? That's a, a whole new world we're sort of stepping into when it comes to that.
1: Exactly. And exactly. If, if you can think of, you know, um, Let's say you, and I think Google is a good example of this. You know, Google owns a variety of different um, wind farms. Uh, I think they own some battery storage, uh, large-scale battery storage. They may even own solar that I'm, I'm just not aware of. And they can use that for their own purposes, but then also sell that. Mm-hmm. And um, And so that ability to be both a buyer and a seller, both a producer and a consumer is happening at a lot of different scales.
2: Right. right. And,
1: and it's what's, what's important. And if I think if you think of it in terms of layers, right. So the bottom layer is that physical layer, right? So the, the distribution wires, the flow of current, um, and, and, you know, kind of, Rearchitecting the distribution network to enable better enable the two-way flow, to enable more capacity for the two-way flow, um, and that's actually a really complicated piece of engineering, um, and it involves all sorts of stuff that uh, that I'm not enough of an engineer to to know a lot about, like reactive power and voltage regulation and frequency regulation and the fact that um, you know big. Steam turbine fossil fuel generators give the network inertia, but if you re- rely more on renewables, you lose that inertia. And so, what do you do? You know, what are the effects of that? So, the engineering challenge here is not small, um, but it's doable, and there's a lot of people doing a lot of really good hard work on on that. Um, but the the thing that I definitely focus on, and this is where coast comes into the story, is that. Um, these digital technologies that enable us to network, to be connected to each other and enable us to automate activities really reduce transaction costs. So things that we we used to do through vertically integrated hierarchical relationships and that we used to enforce through regulation, we can now, at the margin, shift more of that into market transactions with each other, uh, I think you still want to have regulation as a backstop for things like fraud and creditworthiness and and you know consumer information.
0: The, the framework but, for the whole
1: thing. But the framework and and so you know using using competition in markets and and the idea of having multiple producers and consumers uh, as a way of, of essentially disciplining. Uh, you know, doing, doing some of the kind of disciplining activity that regulation used to do, right? So, so digital technologies reduce transactions costs in ways that make more market transactions more valuable to more people.
0: Right. And and so, so let me ask then, um and of course, as, as we were sort of saying earlier in the chat, uh, it's one theme that metaphors can sometimes be, cl- be clunky, but I'm trying to sort of tie it up a bit into a neater package if we can just to think about it because we've been unbundling it a lot. So when we bundle everything we've been talking about back together, it, it seems that like if, again, and then we tie that bundle to sort of, economic theory in, in a very light way, it seems that sort of what we've been talking about is that traditional ways of delivering electricity, the ones at least we've had for, for the past many decades, feels a little bit more sort of like, if you will, uh, more of like a, a central planning, as you said, more vertically oriented approach, whereas what you're describing in the future you might be heading towards is more like a, a as we were saying, a bottom up market oriented approach, right, where we're actually seizing, uh, you know, opportunities with with other people helping to solve in a decentralized fashion like the knowledge problem and as you said actions on the margin and i actually i'm miss misspeaking because it's not really them per se either we're really talking about their technologies their tesla power walls their their computers all the tech they have it's a decentralized approach to figuring out that that two-way and, and multi-directional distribution of electricity rather than, for instance, Canadian example, Ontario, the government deciding that one crown corporation does this with a bureau of people who make decisions who, who shove electricity to your house. Sounds like that's sort of a central planning versus a markets discussion in, in, in a way if you stretch it. To that sort of metaphor, at least.
1: Oh yeah, very much so, and and in particular, and this is this is where Hayek enters the story, and and something that I think is uh, is something that I focus on a lot because it's it's an aspect that's really missing from a lot of the economics of regulation and the practice of regulation is is really that focus on the knowledge content of prices, right? So so market epistemology and. I think the um, the and, and this is where the the area that that I work on um, called transactive energy is very much focused on this idea that at the distribution level, where you would previously have a control room with a set of power system engineers, and they're basically twiddling dials and stuff to make sure that because in in the electric power network, supply has to equal demand in real time. Uh, or else uh, you have blackouts or else um, it's very dangerous
0: right <laughs> two extremes
1: so yes so um, and so so for both reliability purposes and for safety, supply equaling demand in real time, you know within and again, because this the stuff all goes as sine waves and so there's kind of buffers and you know there's a little a little buffer around that but it, but pretty much, within any five minute period supply has to, quantity supplied has equal quantity demanded. And, um, and the traditional way of making that happen is a very centralized control room approach uh, that, but with transactive energy, what that opens up the potential to use the digital technology and use automation and use market processes to coordinate these decentralized, distributed consumers and producers of of, um, power so that you can achieve that balance with less centralized control. I don't think you're going to, you're never going to, at least not in the configuration we're currently in, you're not going to eliminate the control room engineers, right? There's always going to need to be some, some control room backstop for reliability. Right. But, but the idea is, right, so say, you know, you've got your solar on the roof and you've got your electric vehicle and you've got your, your Powerwall battery in the garage and suppose there's, you know, a hundred of you scattered around, you know, and that there is a market in which you can participate and you've got a home energy management system and your solar and your EV and your um, battery, and your um, air conditioning and your heat and your refrigerator and your clothes dryer are all connected to your home energy management system. And, um, you know, you've, and I'm going to make this as user-friendly as possible. Suppose you have, uh, there's, there are competing retail providers out there um, and that you have a contract with one of them and that they've come in and they've set up your home energy management system so that you can program in your willingness to pay. Right. So, um, you know, I'm willing to pay, you know, th- this time of day, you know, I'm not home or, or it's the middle of the afternoon. So, right, right. um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to pay a lower price for, you know, keeping my freezer chiller at, at, you know zero uh zero degrees right i think that's fahrenheit zero not celsius zero (laughs) Um, but uh the um and the 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 nice thing is that that you know if if you're participating in a market and the price you're willing the price goes above what you're willing to pay that's going to turn off that chiller in your freezer but it's probably only going to be like you know five or ten minutes maybe half an hour and so the thermal mass of of the freezer means you're not going to you're not going to lose any consumption value
0: and if we multiply that over thousands of people even hundreds actually as you started with this is where we start to sort of envision this world of people you know stopping their freezers for 10 minutes maybe selling the electricity out of their tesla if they're not using it at night that kind of thing back to that multi-directional exactly. system and, and, and driven driven by markets. Um, I, I want to move to add to actually your point there and explore that thread. I want to put a little bit more of a practical spin as we ste- step deeper into this pond. You sort of mentioned that a company like sort of a, a home energy management provider could install some tech at your house or something like that. One interesting other thing that you, you've written about is um this idea that, again, moving away from the fact we get our electricity from the power company, the way I understand uh, you talking about sort of the platform model of energy supply is this is sort of like akin to the way we would, for instance, take an Uber or do skip the dishes, that kind of thing, right? Like so this is something you also see as as possible uh, that there are sort of these intermediary companies. Between electricity and us, uh, that is to say, for instance, when I'm, I'm sure everybody listening knows, but just in case you don't, when you take an Uber, you, uh, everyone listening, you're not uh, taking uh, a ride from an Uber employee per se, right? The, the app is a connector, an intermediary between yourself and the transportation service. All that to say, you think this this is a, a practical view on on where this could go? That more players enter the market, even from a brokering perspective.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That. Um uh, and I do think just for for kind of consumer convenience, there are a lot of people who may want to get the benefits of uh, lowering their energy bills or conservation or reducing greenhouse gases, but they they want to do it in a way that's convenient for them because you know they want to live their lives. They don't want to be home energy managers. so, um, so the, the idea of a platform business model is for the existing distribution utilities to basically be a wires company and to be the the, the language that's evolving in uh in Europe and that we're you know starting to look at models of having now in the US is the idea of being a distribution system operator. Right. So have have the, the wires company basically still own the wires because honestly, there is still the economies of scale um because of because of of well economies of scale but also because of network effects that that the network still does have some of those natural monopoly characteristics and, like trains um,
0: and tracks I guess right,
1: right right yeah train tracks for sure and and um so having this still regulated Wires company and having them be the distribution system operator, so they're responsible for achieving that supply demand balance, and they're responsible for delivering the energy of delivering power delivering to um, to uh, to end users right and but as a, a putting in that economic layer, then um, either they as the DSO or some market provider. Right, if transactions costs go low enough, you could imagine a third-party market provider or a couple of different market providers. You know, I participate in the alpha market, and you participate in the gamma market, and maybe there can be transactions across those markets. Right, but but in general, the concept is you have a market layer on top of the distribution layer, and in the market layer, um, you know, our devices that we all have pro, we, you know, they've got programmed in willingness to pay, to buy and willingness to offer, um, to sell. Right. And so we've got, we've got these trigger prices of how much I'm willing to pay and how much I'm willing to sell at and for, for each of my devices. And then that gets automated and, um, and then it's, it's really run more algorithmically.
0: Right, and, and as we know, as as that, that's more consumer-driven and bottom-up driven and market-driven, and, and market that's more efficient, as you said, than a bunch of guys in a control room somewhere, right? So this is sort of what we probably want to head towards if we actually see the industry being successful.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the engineers, the engineers might take issue with with the argument that that that's better, and that's this is a fight that I or, or a conversation that I have a lot, because from their point of view, it's about aligning the know, sort of system. Balance and the system benefits with the individuals. But this is where I think the the um, knowledge content of prices and the subjectivism that we get from Hayek is really, really important because um, I think the the culture in the electricity industry is it has embedded in it a tendency to think in terms of costs, right? So it's a very cost-driven right, right. economic model, whereas once we start, because that you know, if they think about what they're what they've been selling for the past you know, 110 years, is this kind of plain vanilla electric service, right? But now we have the ability to, you know, the 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 resource that we have actually have different value propositions by location, and they can have different value propositions by you know, are they renewable or not? Are they low greenhouse gas emitting or not? Um, and so, so you've got much more heterogeneity in the resources. And the, 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 um, the, the thing that markets enable us to do better than regulation is to incorporate the extent to which consumers have subjective preferences. And and I think that's the really important difference between, say, the conversation you and I are having, and a conversation I would have with a control room kind of engineer, because there the the focus is on minimizing system costs. Whereas now, what's possible with all of these different resources and digital, um, digitally enabled markets to coordinate us all is potentially more value creation for. All these consumers who have different and very subjective preferences we now recognize that and incorporate that into the business model and into the market design, which means more value creation.
0: Right? Yeah, like it, it becomes more of like a like a service and convenience sort of models what the consumer is going to receive rather than just a utility. Uh, idea, so to speak, like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, again, metaphors are clunky, but someone in charge of running the taxi monopoly in the city with the, you know, at, at, the, at the city council or, or on the, the mayor's staff or whatever is going to think exactly, as you said, along those very rationalistic vertical lines. Okay, well, well, of course, we know how many taxi licenses we need to give out. It's really about how many taxis are on the road, taxi, taxi, taxi. It's a taxi conversation, whereas what Uber and all these other now companies are showing us is this is a, it's it's a, it's a ride sharing ride service conversation and a convenience conversation the consumers don't go out their doors in the morning saying hey i need i need a taxi what they need is they need to get somewhere whether it's a taxi or not from the state's difference and i think it it sounds very similar to what we're talking about here is this is ultimately about consuming uh, energy and electricity and how that impacts someone's life it's not about how i deal with the power company because as you said a lot of people don't even care about that. They just pay their bill.
1: And I think the analogy there is really useful because, of course, electricity is a—it's an input. We don't cons, we don't wake up saying I'm going to consume a ton of electricity. Day we, we wake right. up yeah, and
2: say, "That's true. I yeah. really want to
1: go take a shower. Um, I really want to go charge my phone. I'm going to
0: drive my car. Uh, I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to do this. Right. I'm going to do that. It's goal oriented. You know, You're right. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, no. One yeah, says. I don't.
1: I don't yeah. want. I don't want electricity. I want. A hot cup of tea and a shower.
0: Exactly. So we need more. We need more of a like a, a cons, almost like a consumer electronics part in the kind of pun, approach to consuming electricity, kind of like the the Apple approach to products when that was revolutionary in the '80s, as opposed to sort of like you know th- this could be very huge. That's why I think it's an interesting conversation, right? It's like sort of when the computer as a piece of technology moved from a personal productivity device in your office in the '80s to a networked device. That connected the internet and, and on from there. I think it, it could be that drastic of a shift in in terms of what th- this whole conversation is useful for. So 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 that 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 is very interesting. I am noting our time is winding down, and as we've sort of both proven, we can go almost forever on this topic. But <laughs> but I do want to move us along to some some uh, a couple of practical points before our formal wrap up. So in consideration of everything we've talked about today, um, in in one of your papers, you did talk about that. A couple of things policymakers could consider, at least as first steps to making more of a market approach to energy, and at least baby steps toward this future we've been talking about. And uh, and and one of the things you said that's just to start off with is allowing electricity rates to vary dynamically over the day based on demand, as you said, and uh, in, instead of just having this very cost and system oriented approach, just even introducing the idea into the industry in people's minds that this can be a very price oriented industry is like pretty much the first step to, to acceptance, if you will, of where we're going with this.
1: Yes. And, and, uh, but I would couple that with, uh, one of the reasons why I've always been a, um, you know, as opposed to being kind of a, you know, academic researcher, I've also been an advocate for moving towards retail competition is um you know one of the one of the concerns and I think it's a justifiable concern about that dynamic real-time pricing is you know what about um, low-income people or vulnerable populations or you know that don't necessarily want to be exposed to that price risk and so I think retail competition shows that you um, you know, in, in a in a you know economic sense, what we get is product differentiation, right? So if I want a real time price contract because I am comfortable automating my devices to respond to prices, um, and so I think that that can save me money, I'll do that. But then if there are other people who don't want to take that risk, there should be a, a retail provider who who offers a menu of contracts, one of which could be real time, the other could be fixed price. Or uh, like a peak and off-peak time of use price, so that you have particular hours during the day when you know the price is going to be high. Um, so if you have that menu of contracts available and people can choose, right? Then you know that that you know that's an even even more fundamental first step.
0: Yeah. And and one more point before the formal wrap up here. It's just I guess it's a bit of a speculation thing or maybe some advice from you, but. So, those coming at this from a a, a, tr- a truly committed sort of a principled approach to markets, bottom up, uh, ultimately, technologies or tools that allow people to achieve that goal or, or that principle, as as classical liberals, market friendly libertarians, whatever you you want to say, how do you think people should? Uh, keep their eye out as we go into the future of of this technological shift in, ter- in terms of competition? What what should we fear? How do we ensure that we don't end up just with a, a technological future of another couple of companies just running all this infrastructure? When, when Apple comes out of the gate in 20 years and said, we can install all the power management systems, that's probably going to be a red flag kind of thing, right? So, so th- other than that, how should we keep our eyes open as as market friendly folks, and as we go into this future? Because it can't just be about the tech.
1: It can't be about the tech. I think it's, and this is why, you know, when I when I think at a high level about the um, the economic approach that I take to these ideas, it really is a mashup of Smith, Schumpeter, Coase, and Hayek. That um, that I think the fundamental uh, question is the um, kind of the harmony, I'll use a very Smithian word, the harmony of um, technological change and innovation with the institutional framework. And so I think, uh, you know, making sure that we keep a focus on institutions you know, and for the past 110 years, the dominant institutions in electricity have been regulatory, you know, government, um, you know, government administrative regulation. And that one thing that we should pay attention to is not just the technology and the potential the technology creates, but that if we are going to enable the of the learning and the feedback effects that are what we get from markets um, that what we need to uh, focus on because this is an industry that because of the network effects and because of economies of scale it is prone to market power and market concentration so i think you know a fun always a fundamental first set of questions that i ask is um is this creating an entry barrier Right. And right. so that's, that's always got to yeah. be the first question is, is this creating an entry barrier for either uh, new suppliers, new producers or for consumers where it's just, it's too costly for them to participate. Um, and so entry barriers is, is kind of what I think the focus should be for f- folks who are committed to markets as coordinating processes.
0: As Adam Smith tells us, back to that, right to 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 widen the market, narrow the competition, that's always in the interest of the dealers and the merchants and manufacturers. So, timeless yeah. advice there. I think that's an excellent one. And <laughs> and our time our time is definitely wound down now and uh, and thank you very much for the great conversation. Let's do the formal wrap up. In each episode, I want to make sure the guest has the last word. So, let me take us to the outro by asking you we've talked about a lot Let's try and put, you know, go full circle on it. Let's put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways here for someone listening to you on how markets can restructure energy? If you want to leave them with one or two thoughts, what are those?
1: That we think about how technological change and especially digital technologies enable markets to coordinate a whole lot of very heterogeneous buyers and sellers of energy who are increasingly going to have very heterogeneous and distributed resources, and that we can achieve that decentralized coordination largely through um, prices and uh, digital automation.
0: Lynn Keesling thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Great talk.
0: This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.